We take your Bibles and open them to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes. I will tell you now, I will not be able to get through all of that today. Uh, I'm hoping to cover verses uh, 1 through 7, and then uh, in the next message, we'll pick up at verse 8, and we'll just see how far we can get. We may not get through all the first seven verses of this chapter, but uh, we'll do the best that we uh, can. Uh, Why don't we read uh, verses 1 through 7 in their entirety, just to see them in their uh, larger uh, context together. And so uh, you follow along. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you For it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And I trust God will bless his word to our hearts this morning. Second uh, Thessalonians 2 is all about correcting the error that the day of the Lord has come. And, uh, and let me just remind you one more time, this is so important to me as we go through this portion of Scripture, that the purpose of prophecy is not for us to build a prophetic calendar, but to build Christ-like character. It's not to create speculation for the future, but motivation to live for Jesus Christ today. And it's very important that we never divorce end times teaching from living our lives today in a godly manner as we wait on the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the past two Sundays, I shared with you a survey of future events. And I did that believing it would provide a good foundation for this study of chapter 2. It would help us, aid us in our understanding of this truth. And now I believe... uh, that we, now that we've completed the survey over the last couple of weeks, we're ready to examine the chapter in more detail. So uh, please follow in your notes, and uh, we'll begin by reminding ourselves of the specific error uh, that Paul is writing to correct, that we've been talking about the last few weeks. Here it is. The false, false teachers had shaken the composure of the church by teaching that they were in the day of the Lord. And we've seen the day of the Lord, that's the time of God's final judgment on a sinful world. In our survey of future events, that was what? The tribulation period. We looked at that seven-year tribulation period last week. And, of course, this contradicted Paul's earlier teaching that the church would be raptured before this time of judgment. And uh, we even pointed out 
how the false teachers had produced a forged letter as if it had been written by Paul saying that Paul agreed with the false teachers that the day of the Lord had come. So this really rattled the church. I mean, has God's plan changed? I mean, didn't Paul teach us this? Now he's changing his tune, and they were just totally confused. Now the correction. Look at the correction, just sort of summing it up. The purpose of chapter 2 is to calm the believer's hearts and to stabilize their faith by denouncing the false teachers and then reaffirming his previous teaching. And Paul's fundamental argument in chapter 2 is a simple one. And I do not want you to miss the simplicity of chapter 2. His simple argument is this. No one can say the day of the Lord has come until certain events take place. And since those events have not taken place, you cannot be in the day of the Lord. So let's look now with a greater detail at verses 1 through 7 the events that must take place. And Paul mentions three specific events. And the first is the rapture of the church, which will precede the day of the Lord. The rapture of the church, which will precede the day of the Lord, that time of God's final judgment, the tribulation period. Please follow along in your Bibles. Let's read one more time verses 1 and 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and what? Our gathering together to Him that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Notice, Paul begins chapter 2 appealing to the church to calm down concerning the false teaching that they were in the day of the Lord, which again had shaken their composure and greatly disturbed them. Now notice, what is the basis of his appeal for them to calm down in these first two verses? It's the rapture of the church, which he describes in verse 1 as the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and what? And our gathering together to Him to meet Him in the air and to be with Him forever as His bride, as we've looked at the last couple of weeks. Now, notice the little word regard. Do you see that? Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to Him. That little word is huper in the Greek text. It literally means on behalf of. Paul is simply saying, and again, don't miss the simplicity of it. He's simply saying, I'm appealing to you. I'm appealing to you on behalf of the rapture of the church. Calm down. Calm down. Realize you can't be in the day of the Lord. So Paul reassures them by reaffirming what he had already taught them about the rapture when he was with them and when he wrote to them in his first letter. And let's just remind ourselves of some of the truth that he did write in his first letter. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians. Look at uh, the first chapter. Uh, Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, For they themselves report about about us what kind of reception we had with you. He's talking about when he initially went to Thessalonica, began to preach the gospel. 
and uh, the reception that was given him there. And he says, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Let me just pause right there. It's so important to always emphasize this whenever you have an opportunity. Notice what salvation is, authentic salvation. It's turning what? From something to something. They, they turn from their idols, from their sin, from their selfishness, what? To serve a true and living God. I emphasize that just to say again, true authentic salvation is more than giving intellectual assent to the facts about Jesus Christ. The essence of conversion is a moral decision where you are turning from your old life to follow the Lord Jesus Christ as you put your trust in the fact that He paid for the penalty of your sin, rose again as Lord, offering you forgiveness and the power to overcome uh, sin itself and live a holy life. But then notice, He says, you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and notice this, and to what? Wait for His Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, don't miss this, who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. So in that first chapter, he's saying, hey, you folks came to know Christ, and now you with eager anticipation, you wait for Jesus. It's imminent. There's nothing left that needs to be fulfilled. You're you're waiting for him, the one who will deliver you from the wrath to come. And then, of course, probably one of the greatest portions of Scripture, if not the greatest, on the rapture is chapter 4, verse 13. Again, remember the context here. They were were so waiting for the rapture. They, 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 They understood it was imminent. It could happen at any moment that they were concerned it had not come soon enough because what had happened? Loved ones had died. Friends in the fellowship had died, and they were concerned. Okay, what's going to happen with them when Jesus comes for his bride, when he comes for his church? What's going to happen to these dead believers? Will they, will they miss it? And they, and they just needed some instruction here. And so Paul writes to comfort. He says, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. And again, that phrase means those who have died, that you may not Grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Almost similar language to what's used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. To meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And then look at the fifth chapter, the first ten verses. And as I read these verses, one of the keys of interpretation in this section are the pronouns. Notice the use of the pronouns where he talks about they, them, referring to unbelievers, and then talking about us, we, talking about believers, and how he contrasts unbelievers and believers in relationship to the end times, days of the Lord. He says, verse 1, Now, as 
to the times and the epics, brethren. You have no one need. You have uh, no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. It's obvious Paul did a lot of teaching about end time events while he was with them. They were well versed in this. While they, notice again these pronouns, while they, the unbelievers are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and, a, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 9, a key verse. For God has not destined us for what? Wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Now think about this. Just think about this a moment. The fact that the Thessalonians were so shaken that they were in the tribulation clearly indicates that Paul had taught them the rapture would precede the tribulation. If Paul had taught that the church would go through the tribulation, why would they have been shaken from their composure? Why would they have been so disturbed? I mean, if it would have, they would be, if he had taught them they were going to go through the tribulation, it would be just what he told them would happen. They wouldn't be shaken, they would be rejoicing, knowing that if they were in the tribulation, what was coming? The return of Christ, when he would return to earth and establish his earthly kingdom. The fact that Paul taught the rapture would deliver them from the tribulation explains their confusion when they believed they were in it. So Paul's first point is, you can't be in the day of the Lord because the rapture of the church will deliver you from it. And as we saw last Sunday, the rapture is imminent, meaning it can happen at any time. Therefore, we remain what? Ready and alert. Because let me again remind you, what follows the rapture of the church for believers? the judgment seat of Christ. When we will each stand face to face with Christ to give an account of how we lived our Christian lives. And as we saw last week, we'll not only be evaluated on what we did for Jesus, the opportunities that He gave us to live for Him, but why we did what we did, the motives of our hearts. And it will be on the basis of that evaluation that we will either receive reward or loss of reward though our salvation is secure in Christ. And also keep in mind, what Jesus is going to be interested in when he evaluates you is what? What you really are. As I mentioned, we get so busy trying to project an image to people that sort of covers, hides who we are, what we really are. When we hit the judgment seat of Christ, standing face to face with Christ, there will be no cover. We will be exposed for what we are, who we are, the very core of our being. The second event, the second event that must happen before anyone can say that we're in the day of the Lord is the apostasy, which reveals the identity of the Antichrist. This is your second point in your sermon notes. The apostasy, which reveals the identity of the Antichrist. And we 
looked in our survey of future events last week about the Antichrist. If you, were, if you missed that survey, uh, go to the church website. It would be a wonderful uh, information for you to receive. I think it would be very helpful to you. Uh, one of the central figures uh, during the day of the Lord, during the tribulation, is, of course, the Antichrist. And although Paul does not actually use the term Antichrist here in chapter 2, and, and he actually Paul never uses that term, uh, of course, this is exactly who he's talking about. A matter of fact, do you know who the only Bible writer is that actually used that term? Apostle John. The Apostle John is the only Bible writer that actually used that term. Uh, I mean, he, there are other terms. Paul talks about the uh, man of lawlessness, son of destruction in this, in this chapter. Of course, uh, Revelation uh, we'll look at in uh, my next message. He's called the, uh, the beast. Uh, but by the way, the Greek prefix uh, anti has two meanings, against and instead of. Satan not only what? Opposes Christ, but he also wants to be worshipped and obeyed what? Instead of Christ. And in the future, we know that Satan will produce his masterpiece when he raises up the last great world dictator who causes the world to worship Satan and believe his lies. So follow in your Bibles as I read verses 3 through 5 and look not only at how Paul describes the Antichrist, but especially the singular event which reveals his identity, which Paul calls the apostasy. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you. For it, again, what's the it? The day of the Lord. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? Do not overlook that last verse that I read, verse 5, which tells us that what? There's absolutely nothing that Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that what? He had not already taught the Thessalonians about. He had already provided them a survey of future events. He had already taught them about the rapture, the day of the Lord, and the Antichrist. So Paul, again, is merely reaffirming his previous teaching to reassure them that they cannot be in the day of the Lord. Now, after making an appeal to calm down in light of the rapture of the church, he now reminds them that the Antichrist uh, is the key earthly figure, of course, associated with the day of the Lord. And in other words, you can't have the tribulation without the Antichrist. So if the Antichrist is not here, you can't be in the tribulation. I mean, just simple logic is what he's getting at. Now, notice in verse 3, Paul links the apostasy with the revealing of the Antichrist, who he calls the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. The basic meaning of apostasy, the basic meaning is a rebellion or a revolt against God. And notice Paul uses, very, very important, he used the definite article. He talks about the apostasy. He's not speaking of a general flow or trend of apostasy in a culture. 
but he's talking about a very specific, identifiable act of apostasy, a blasphemous act of apostasy of unprecedented magnitude. And this is reinforced in verse 3 when Paul writes, the man of lawlessness is revealed by that apostasy. The verb revealed in the Greek text is, is of course, a aorist verb, which indicates that there comes a definite point in time when the Antichrist identity will be revealed. It, and the word actually implies that he was previously alive and active, but it's the act of apostasy that he commits that suddenly reveals his true character, the evil, monstrous person that he is. Now, what is the act of apostasy, apostasy that reveals the identity of the Antichrist? And if you were with us the last two weeks for our survey of future events, you should know what it is. The prophet Daniel and Jesus both called it the abomination of desolation. And let's just remind ourselves. Go back to Daniel 9. Now, I can't take long here. Last week, I took a lot of time with this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, one of the greatest prophecies in all of the Bible. Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. And the 70th week, remember the weeks are seven year, is a seven-year period of time. And that 70th week, that last seven-year period of time, that's the day of the Lord. That's the tribulation period. And in verse 27, he says, and he, and the he is referring earlier to the prince who is to come. He says that prince, that leader, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. He's going to make a covenant. He's going to make a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. That's who this is talking about. But in the middle of the week, in other words, after three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. That's talking about what? The temple. Because we know that when the Antichrist makes his covenant with the nation of Israel in securing their, their peace, the temple will be rebuilt. But then after three and a half years, he breaks his covenant, he breaks the treaty, and he stops the sacrifice and grain offering. And then notice, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. That's the abomination of desolation. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So it says, here the Antichrist is, makes his treaty with Israel. After three and a half years, he breaks that covenant. Notice the temple is related to this, and then it talks about he eventually will what? Be destroyed, and we know he'll be destroyed when? At the return of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19. Look over at Matthew 24, which Matthew gives us a little more detail about this event. Look at Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, don't miss this, standing in where? The holy place. Where's the holy place? That's the inner sanctum of the temple. So he says, when you see the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about, standing in the holy place in the temple, he says in verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. 
But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then, and you connect that then with the abomination of the desolation, then there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever uh, shall. And then turn over to Mark. Mark says, very similar to what Matthew says. Mark verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, which, of course, is in the holy place in the temple, as we saw in Matthew. Again, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down or enter in to get anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter, for, the, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation which God created until, until now and never shall be. So, what is the abomination of desolation? It's the Antichrist. When he breaks the covenant, turns against Israel, and he comes into the temple, and notice how 2 Thessalonians reinforces all this and gives us even more detail. Go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, look at verses 3 and 4. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, will not come until the, the, the apostasy comes, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction, notice now, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat, where? In the temple, in the temple of God, displaying himself as what? Being God. Folks, that's the apostasy. That's that unprecedented act of, of, uh, of apostasy, that blasphemous act where he literally goes in the temple, goes in the holy place, and he declares to the world, I'm God, and I'm worthy of your worship. I'm worthy of you following me. So again, Paul is saying, you can't be in the day of the Lord. You can't be in the day of the Lord because first the rapture is going to deliver you from that. And on top of that, you can't have the day of the Lord. You can't have the tribulation without the Antichrist. And the Antichrist has not been revealed. He's not present, so you can't be in the day of the Lord. Then he mentions one third thing as we close. The restrainer. The third point, the restrainer must be taken out of the way before the Antichrist can be revealed. The restrainer must be taken out of the way. Look at verses 6 and 7. And you know now what restrains him now. And you know what restrains him now, referring to restraining the Antichrist, that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And man, do we not see that in our day and age. The mystery of lawlessness is at work as people are abandoning God, abandoning authority. There are no moral. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way until he is taken out of the way. Why is Satan unable to reveal the Antichrist sooner? Why? Because God is restraining the forces of lawlessness and evil in the world today. Listen, folks, Satan cannot do whatever he wants whenever he pleases. It's just a fact. 
There is a restraining force that keeps everything on God's timetable, on God's schedule. Now, it's very, very obvious that the Thessalonians knew the identity of the restrainer due to Paul's earlier teaching when he was with them. Therefore, therefore Paul did not repeat it here, which has led to endless speculation among Bible teachers. Uh, the Greek word, which is translated restrains, it means to hold back. It means to hold down. It means to suppress. Also, very important is to notice that there's a change in gender referring to the, rest- the one who restrains. From the neuter participle in verse 6, what restrains, to the masculine participle in verse 7, he who now restrains. So we know the restrainer must be a person who is today present, but one who will be taken out of the way, allowing Satan to raise up the Antichrist. Now, to to me, the answer seems very obvious. The restrainer is the person of the Holy Spirit. The restrainer is the person of the Holy Spirit who has taken up residence where today? In the church. Remember, we looked at this. The church is what? The temple of God. And the Holy Spirit dwells within the church to energize the church, to empower the church, to be that light of the world that we talked to be, to be that salt, to retard evil, to restrain lawlessness. When the church is raptured, now please understand, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is going to exit the world. I mean, the Holy Spirit is God. He's the third person of the Trinity. Therefore, He's omnipresent. But He will be taken out of the way to allow Satan and his forces to go to work. So once the church is raptured, and the Holy Spirit being in the midst of the church, providing that restraining fact, God will just take him out of the way to allow Satan and his forces to go to work. So, to sum up verses 1 through 7, to sum them up, Paul reassures the believers, you cannot be in the day of the Lord. So don't be shaken. Don't be disturbed. And he gives them that reassurance by simply reaffirming what he had already taught them previously about the day of the Lord. That preceding the day of the Lord would be the rapture. And then after the rapture, then the Antichrist will be revealed when the restrainer is taken out of the way. So I trust that this has been... uh, helpful, meaningful to you, but again, I come back to where I began. The purpose of prophecy is not to build future speculation. It's to provide motivation to live for Jesus Christ today. And let me also say, as I close, you have to come to this with a high degree of humility. Uh, I don't claim to have uh, some corner on the truth uh, here, uh, There's a lot of divergence of opinion among Bible teachers on on a lot of these uh, points. Uh, I've shared with you my convictions and why I have those uh, convictions. Uh, But when I think of prophecy and about the humility that you need to handle it, I always think of John the Baptist. Great example. Here was a man that was born for one reason. He was the forerunner to Jesus Christ. 
I mean, his, the reason of his existence was, there's the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. You follow him now. And you remember when Jesus hit the scene, he baptized him. That's exactly what he said. He said, there he is. There's the Messiah. There's the one we've been waiting for. And then if you're familiar with John's story, Jesus goes about his ministry. John continues to ministry. And then John gets put in prison. And in prison, suddenly John begins to doubt about this Jesus. And I think he began to doubt because John took his understanding of Scripture and Jesus wasn't exactly following the pattern that he thought would happen. And so he actually sends some of his followers to Jesus, some of his, and he, and he says, John wants to know, are you the one? And don't miss what Jesus said to him. He, first, he, he, he just says, tell John, uh, you know, about my ministry, things that are happening, which would be reaffirming. But then he says, tell John, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Do you know what Jesus was saying? He said, John, blessed is the one who's going to let me call the shots and do it my way. And, and you know, you may, you, you know, your prophetic calendar may not have been perfectly set in place, and I may, and I may not be doing exactly what you thought, but blessed is the one who's not offended when I do it the way I'm going to do it. And, uh, and so, again, I've shared with you my convictions, uh, but, again, we'll see these things play out as we go forward. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy the uh, next message as well because we'll look at verses 8 and 12 at a description of the Antichrist, and we'll look at his character, and we'll look at his power and authority, his influence, and his destruction, and we'll be comparing that with some other scriptures in, in Revelation. And, it's, and what's fascinating that you're going to see is is how the world scene today just seems to be coming together in light of the prophetic scriptures. It's like all, everything's on stage. And it's just, you know, you know it's just the raptures to come, and then everything can begin to unfurl as God has told us in his scripture. Father, thank you for your truth today. And Lord, use this truth, again, to motivate us to live for Jesus Christ today. For it's in his name we do pray, amen.